Is local economic development policy in the UK doing enough to address rising income and wealth inequalities and social divisions? Are contemporary policy frameworks like levelling up, community wealth building or foundation economies likely to improve outcomes or do we need new tools and approaches? And if these issues are more acute in the UK than in other developed economies, why? I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. David, we've we've flirted with the inclusion dimensions of LED and placemaking many times before on this podcast, but I think this is the first time we've made it the focus of an episode. Yeah, that's right, Mike. I mean, it is a huge topic. And I think we've both been waiting for the right guest to help us explore some of the key issues in depth. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Danny Dorling, the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. Danny's been at the forefront of social and economic mapping, particularly of demographic, poverty and disadvantage data for most of his career. But he's done this to surface understandings of why Britain is so unequal compared to many relevant international comparators and what needs to change to address this. Books like Peak Inequality, Inequality and the 1% are shortly to be augmented by Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State, which will be published, I believe, in September. Danny, you you kindly shared a draft of your latest publication in preparation for the podcast. I mean, it's an extraordinarily rich, readable and compelling, if somewhat gloomy portrait of how the UK is failing to address the five giants of 21st century poverty, hunger, precarity, waste, exploitation and fear. And you trace these back almost in a golden thread directly to the five giants of want, squalor, idleness, ignorance and disease identified in the seminal 1942 beverage report that shaped so much of the UK's post-World War II welfare state settlement. I think it's fair to say, given we are an LED and placemaking podcast, that all 10 of the evils from beverage to your forthcoming shattered nation are not terms in constant contemporary use by local economic development and placemaking practitioners. But we are, as a profession, increasingly trying to find ways to address inclusion and inequalities better in all our intervention strategies and programs. So a huge, huge welcome to LED Confidential, Danny. What are your impressions of the roles and impact of LED and placemaking in tackling your five giants of poverty? And where would you like to take our conversation over the next 40 minutes or so? Uh, Thank you ever so much for having me. It's a ridiculously wide topic. And it's a it's a topic with a very long history. William Beveridge, when he came up with the five social evils, two of them, I think it's wanton ignorance, he took their names from the two children that Charles Dickens put in a Christmas carol. The children were called wanton ignorance. So you you can go back to Victorian times and you can go back to the advocacy of Dickens 
of and how he raised issues at his time of what we shouldn't tolerate. And also, if you go back that far, you can also be optimistic about the future because there was a long period from around the time of the First World War through to the 1970s where inequalities did fall year after year after decade after decade. Inequalities in education uh, were reduced dramatically. We became one of the most equitable countries in the world over how we taught and treated our children. By the end of that period, they could all go to the same schools together. Inequalities in health fell enormously, so that by the 1970s, the city of Sheffield, where I lived for 10 years, had better life expectancy than the national average. You know, people just don't think that is possible nowadays. I'm interested in the long-term changes in these things, partly for hope and optimism, but also in local action and advocacy. Because going right back to Dickens, he was talking about particular places, particular parts of London. You know, these stories were real. They weren't the kind of statistics I use, which, you know, a genie coefficient for a whole country. You know, you've lost 99% of your audience at that point. You need tales of, of places, and they shock you each time you hear them. The one I heard two weeks ago was about the increased use of candles in Islington. More and more candles are appearing in people's houses in, in parts of Islington because they have the electricity now turned off, and so you're back to candlelight. A year ago in Oxford, the first time I heard about babies who've never been washed in warm water in the city of Oxford because the uh, gas boiler has not been on. They've gone through a whole winter without. And it may not surprise your listeners, but uh, a baby doesn't get used to not being washed in, in, in warm water. And these stories are so much more effective than the statistics and also the stories of the local actions that people are doing in places to try really, really hard to turn things around or at least make them better or at least reduce the suffering as much as can be uh, reduced. It can be disconcerting to measure the effects and find that the actual overall aggregate effects of lots of local action is not great. But without it, if we didn't have this, the situation would be so much worse. And then the thing, when the tide turns, when we start, as always happens, on the road towards becoming a more equal uh, set of countries, that's when that kind of action can have its greatest effect. And, and when it did last in the 1960s and 1970s, towards the tail end of that period of great in increases in equality. Uh, that's a really good intro to sort of take us right back to, I think it's the first time we've had Dickens on LED Confidential, but I'm really interested in your sort of World War One, the end of World War One to the 1970s and what you think changed then. Funnily enough, in preparation for the podcast, Mike and I had a, a bit of a chat about this. Mike, do you want to say what, what your big exogenous factor was that was certainly part of the driver of of change yeah i was i was sort of a as a as a bit of a strange question just to start off with um but i i was interested to get your take on how far you thought the oil price crises had been one of the major triggers for change i think in within the sector we tend to think about that period as one that triggered quite large 
changes in our industry. You know, it's basically it is one of the major contributory factors to manufacturing declining. Um, it birthed new industries like North Sea oil. And of course, it really was one of the major contributors to the economic turmoil of that decade in the 70s that gave rise to you know, a big switch in uh, approaches to economic management. But it strikes me that that's kind of, in a sense, as David says, it's, it was an exogenous event. Um, it was something that wasn't strictly within the control of politicians in, in the UK or elsewhere. What What is the role of these kind of big events that happen in our own lifetime? Of course, we've got, you know, the, the more, more recently we've had the Ukraine war, which might be analogous to that. Are, are, are those at the heart of these big changes, these big generational changes? What happened in the 1970s? They really do matter. I mean, so the, the interesting thing about the 1970s is that it was a turning point for many countries. Uh, equality had been dramatically improving almost everywhere, faster in the UK than elsewhere. So so we became the second most equal large country in Europe after Sweden. We were Nordic in my childhood. The oil shock affected almost all of the rich countries for which we have data, and we can see inequality rising then. I don't see it so much as an oil shock as the end of the empires, the end of colonies, the last ones were going in, in the 70s, India for us had gone earlier, and the assertion of rights and power by poorer countries, most obviously those oil nations deciding, what are we doing shipping this oil which is worth a fortune so cheaply to our former colonial masters? So it wasn't just the oil which was a shock in the 1970s. It was India deciding not to import our cars, which were very expensive, and start to making their own. You know, our shipyards didn't go on the Tyne and the Clyde uh, because the, the docks didn't silt up. Other countries worked out how to build ships, often places which were much poorer. There was a, a rise in greater equality in the world at this time, but for the USA and Europe, this was a shock. And what was interesting was the different reactions in different countries to the shock. In the USA and in the UK, we in effect decided to jettison the poor. We decided to try to keep up living standards for those who had the most, so that they shouldn't drop. But we were willing to let unemployment rise, to let unemployment benefits fall, to be very low. We no longer tried to keep the wages similar so tight that we'd got them it was fine for people to be paid the market rate which meant much much less than they had been being paid and it also became fine for a few people to get richer and richer and richer uh, because that was how we were going to get our way out of this crisis they thought you know we'll, we'll build our way out of it by creating a banking sector so large and powerful that the trickle down from the banks will keep the uk going and to do that we must bring top rates of income tax down to 40%, so the bankers are incentivized to get more money. Different countries behave differently. The Nordic countries, and this is when we realized we weren't Nordic, even if we looked similar on the statistics, the Nordic countries tried harder to hold it together. They cared about each other more. They didn't allow the group who was most wealthy in those countries 
to find ways of moving ahead at the expense of the poor. France had a much more solidarity society than us, which is why it's ended up being one of almost the most equal large European country because of how it reacted to the 70s and early 80s. Much later, Germany changed, and Germany is now on a par with France. France and Germany are the two most equal European nations, and only four countries separate them from Finland when it comes to income inequality. We went the other way. We went the most extreme way, almost heading towards uh, fantasies of Empire 2.0. We were going to be great again. And we painted the 70s as a terrible decade of dystopia. The histories were written by men who largely went to private school, often who actually were too young to have known the 70s. When Liz Truss wrote about the 70s, she wasn't born, but you know she'd read Sandbrook and, and believed him. There's a very different story at the 70s. It, it's the different story of the, of the 70s is the story of the highest wages that people had ever known, of strikes attempting to keep what had been won and failing to do that, of wages going up in most year, years in the 70s above inflation because of that action. Unlike now, where wages are going up well below inflation, the 70s were, were the decade in which what had been won was lost following a long and bitter fight, which eventually ended in the 1984-1985 strike. But yes, it was an endogenous action that, that brought it to a head, but there was a fight within this country and within every other rich country over how we reacted to it and, and how we dealt with it. And that fight was utterly lost by people who cared more about other people in Britain and elsewhere that fight didn't go as badly. And so when you look at the fanning out of inequalities and experiences across Europe, you're seeing, if you like, the effects of the, of the losing or winning of the battles that occurred back then. A fascinating historical perspective, but we really must try and bring it uh, to sort of contemporary times because many of those pressures and tensions seem to be apparent in the sort of big perma-crises, polycrises, we're facing, whether it's global conflict, cost of living, uh, scarcity economies, and, and, and so on. You're faced with these mega crises. What can places do? And what, what, I guess, can we take from some of your historical experience that would be relevant for, the, for resolving the tensions in more equal ways today? Yeah. But the key thing is to realise that we are currently in the very opposite of the 70s. The 70s were a period where we had achieved the greatest equality that these countries of the UK had ever known, and it was lost. The, the, the more relevant period is just after the First World War, where we were at a height of inequality, where the most common job for women was to be a servant, when the gaps between the social classes were huge, and when, in effect, we did things nationally such as tax wealth, because we had to. We did it in a very English way. People donated their country houses to the National Trust. But just watching the servants disappear, there was also enormous amounts of local action. It was interventionist local authorities 
in the 1920s at first. It wasn't until 1934 that we had the Government Special Area Act, which gave regional funding to particular places. Before then, it was local actions. It was the creation of health services in particular parts of London, long before the NHS was thought of. So the precursors are always local. And you can produce a triumphant local history, if you want, which is slightly disingenuous, but of taking the first health centre, looking at the first scheme for unemployment, finding the first pamphlet which suggested something, and then showing how on from that all that was good grew. It's disingenuous, of course, because for every one of those efforts and pamphlets, there were fouls and efforts that were dashed, that were failed, community centres, you know, that fell into disrepair. But, you know, if you're working in local economic development and you, and you want things to galvanise you, good things do not come out of the heads of government ministers thinking, I've got a cunning plan that will work for the whole country. Good things come out of being started and showcased somewhere. The, the playgroup movement in the 1970s is one of my favourites. You know, this was young women deciding that, that they were sick of being at home with their children and working out how they could get together in church halls just for a couple of hours at minimal cost and begin to create collective childcare. Now, now we have privatised nurseries doing it, okay? But all these things you, you can trace back to local effort, local work, local examples. Going back further, the, the nationalisation or localisation of water supplies. You know, it's just fascinating watching how long did it take each borough uh, uh, and county town to work out that that private company doesn't have your interests at best heart when it comes to supplying you with water. Uh, so all these innovations were local originally. That localism was dashed in the 70s and 80s. It really, really did die. Communities were destroyed. People were told to look after themselves. There's no such thing as society, only you and your family. A bit of charity would be nice, but you know, otherwise, if the market doesn't sort it out, it can't be good. We've run that experiment. We know it was wrong. It will be, hopefully, History doesn't repeat, but it does tend to rhyme and echo. It will be the things which are being done now, in particular streets and particular places, that will be referenced in 20 or 30 years' time as, where did that start on our road towards our children and our grandchildren, being able to live in what hopefully will be a much more normal European country? Danny, this, this might be an unfair question because I'm asking you to sort of predict the future a bit, but are, when you look around the country doing your, um, your your social and economic mapping, do you spot any places where you predict that there might be uh, programmes that we, you know, are, are, are there programmes now that you think potentially could be a blueprint for some national plan later down the line? And and. Some, Adding on to that question, are there places in the UK today that are bucking the trend in a way that should make us stop and, and look and say, well, what what are they doing? And have they got a formula that can be a blueprint for something bigger? There, there are a series of very local examples that you know much more about than me and are often repeated in, in books. And I, I worry sometimes they might get fatigue over you know, the Preston model and, and so on about the repeating of all some communities in London. I think the most neglected example, which is well worth well worth talking about, 
is larger than the community, but it's really it's just two large cities and a few other places. Uh, and that, that place, which is two large cities and a few other places, we know as Scotland. Scotland has managed to keep its university education free at the point of delivery. It has begun to control its private landlords as it declared an emergency with the cost of living crisis. Uh, but most importantly, Scotland, which is Glasgow and Edinburgh and a few other bad places, it is quite local. Since November of last year, the Scottish child payment was risen to £25 per child per week for any child living in the family claiming any forms of benefit. That's two out of seven children in Scotland. If you have three children aged 16 or under and you're getting any kind of benefit, within a year you will receive £3,900 more than you were receiving before. It is not tapered. You get no reduction in universal credit or anything else because you receive this. Very, very simply, in those two Scottish cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, no child by this winter need go cold or hungry. You know, and there's an example. And often when I describe this and I don't say where it's happening, I ask the audience to guess and they go Norway, they go Finland. They, they, it takes them sometimes 10 European countries before they get to, oh no, it's in the UK. The efforts being made in Wales to cope with the situation, which is based not on money because there isn't any money left. It, it's galvanising local ethos that you still arrange your health service collectively and for those most in need first. The rollout of the vaccines was far more efficient in Wales, the timing. Um, because you had that in-the-bones feeling of everybody matters. And so what the Welsh, what the Welsh government have done matters. It's more difficult in England... What I would say is is that we, where we may underestimate the effects of local action is by not realising how much worse things would be if there wasn't that happening. And often what it is doing is, is holding the line. Oxford, before the pandemic, uh, we had the second highest rate of homeless people on our streets, the second highest rate of death of homeless people. At first, our local councillors issued ASBOs on the homeless. They thought these are people coming in to beg from elsewhere. It was when all but one Polish man who died on the bridge, all the deaths, and you're talking several dozen deaths in a year, they worked out were people who'd grown up as children in the city, gone away, and then come back when everything fell apart or come back when they were released from prison with a tent. You get a tent when you're released from prison. And so when our local councillors in this city of Oxford actually realised with shock that the people who were dying were not chances coming in, but were children who'd grown up in Oxford and were dying in their 40s and 50s, we'll have to watch on that for what happens this year. The government knows. The government knows what the projected rate of increase of people sleeping on the streets is going to be each month. They know about the evictions because people can't pay those private rents. They know that their support they're giving to local authorities for housing refugees, including Ukrainian refugees, is now not sufficient to house them. They know it will rise and it will be a local authority officer and a charity worker, just two or three people who will make a difference in a local place to what's going to occur in 2023. Uh, the last example I'll give you is uh, uh, more positive a uh, brilliant campaign, the most successful campaign in Britain. 20's plenty. This is a campaign to get our speed limits in towns down to 20 miles an hour. 
in Sheffield, it was just two people, right? It, nationally, it's Rod and Anne, <laughs> okay? 20 plenty have got the majority of roads down to 20 miles an hour in, in most of our cities and all of Wales. I mean, look, those are great stories and, and great examples. Um, I, you sort of started off actually mentioning the Preston model, and we did say in one of our provocations that, you know, although far from perfect, local economic development has actually been trying to experiment with models like circular economy or community wealth building. And, you know, you mentioned Wales, and I know Wales has looked really seriously at stuff like universal basic income and, and so on. I mean, on the economic agendas... Do do you see local economic development and placemakers being able to use tools and frameworks that can really make a difference at scale across multiple places? I think they will really make a difference. I don't think they will be enough on their own to make the difference that we need. If you want to see what's required for the difference we need, the best model is Germany, which was the only country in Europe in 1989 to have higher regional divides than we have. We are in such a state of difference in inequality that local action alone will not be enough. But without the Preston model, without people saying, do we really have to buy that from over there? Can't we get it locally? There would be a much more dire situation than, than there currently is. But in Germany, they taxed West Germany to level up East Germany because they thought other Germans were worthwhile. We have lost in England the belief that the people living in the towns of the north are the same people as us living down in the south. And it's only now when you begin to see southern towns doing really badly, villages in which people can't afford uh, the oil, that you that you're beginning to see some kind of understanding come back. But a country more divided than Germany, without a sense of solidarity that other people are like us, that, that's how bad things got. And that's a geographical division. We've always had the class divisions. They kind of narrow, but they're back where, you know, those below us are there to be ruled. They don't have it in them to work out how to do things themselves. You know, you don't tell them that you know, and that rose in Britain in the eighties and nineties and two thousands. The idea of the top cornflakes and the little people, and we have to get kick that out again, which is really really hard to do when people have been told since school that they are specially able and they're there to be leaders. And so, local action can't be that imposed by a well-meaning outsider who's come in as the chief executive with their great ideas and their clutch of academic books. It it has to be internal. But but also it can't just be about making my place better than others. It can't just be a Manchester man thing of we're gonna do this, we're tough, and look at the middle of Manchester now. You look at the twenty twenty one census and you go, Oh yeah, you really did manage to push all the poor out, didn't you? You know, that was successful. So it, it's a sweet spot between imposition from outsiders with their great ideas about how Stroud should work or the Humphleff or somewhere and this idea that it's some kind of race 
where your city has got to do better than the other cities. Bring the developers in, get the Chinese to build tower blocks, measure your whatever it's called, local GDP value added. That's the one, the most ridiculous measure in, in economic history. Yeah. Oxford has the same GDP value added as Blackpool. It's a ridiculous measure. And it is human that's needed, you know, rather than the, this silly thing of looking at some of these ridiculous statistics or thinking any money that comes in, you need to look at Blackpool and you need to look at Oxford. Both cities have huge problems. A third of children are poor in Oxford. People cannot afford housing at all. And say, how would you like this place to be in 20, 30 or 40 years time? What kind of a city would you like your or town? Would you like your grandchildren to live in? Would you like them to be able to live in it at all? What will it take to move towards that? And people did that in the past. When they were building council houses in the 50s and 60s, they were building them for 200 years. You know, it's that kind of, when they built reservoirs before we stopped doing that in the 80s, they were building reservoirs for the long-term future of communities. And we've had so many decades of increased selfishness and isolation that we've lost this sense of, of building and acting for a community, for the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, the next, and who, and who, who comes there. So, so the turnaround that's needed is, is enormous because we are in the worst situation in Europe. We're not as bad as the USA. We don't abandon towns. We, know, we don't have ghost towns. We don't have two million people in our prisons. We don't have one in 13 women in Baltimore, black women being evicted every year. We don't have millions of people sleeping in cars or on the streets. Uh, we don't have guns all over the place. We, we don't have life expectancy falling by a year for men, but not because of the pandemic, but because of opiates. You know, it could be far worse. If you want to see what happens, if you really muck it up, look at place making in the USA. But we are the nearest country in Europe to head towards that situation and we sometimes look at the USA and say isn't that a great country and we've just got to stop doing that even the best off 1% in the USA do not have life expectancies any higher than our best off 1% for all their additional greed and taking they're not living any longer and our best off 1% have some of the worst life expectancies in Europe so it's not as if the greedy and the rich are doing well out of any of this do, do you see any grounds for optimism, Dan? <laughs> yeah, yes, no, 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 I, 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 um, I really, I really, really do. I mean, there's a banal ground for optimism. What's going to turn it all around? I mean, I, I, I was going. I guess I've got to the two two observations or or questions. I, I guess one is, I'd be, I'm interested to know your view on, notwithstanding what you said about the scale of the challenge and how it requires national action as well as as, as local action. What do you think about this kind of you know, this we now have an additional class of politician that we didn't have before, which are directly elected mayors, and there are increasing number of cities and and percentage of the population that vote in mayoral elections these days, and a sort of consolidation of powers and funding, albeit probably slower than David and I would like, I, I guess. But uh, there is a kind of there is change and in, in fluidity in local governance and democracy, isn't there? Um, so that that's that's I guess my first question is is what do you make of that and and how do you think that's likely to impact any of these big trends? And my second question is, in the scorched earth of contemporary Britain, are there 
any green shoots coming through that you know, any grounds for optimism are there things that we can point to and say well actually maybe something's going right okay okay two things on your first one i think it is brilliant that we've done the turn towards devolution which began i think with the 1997 government a government i often criticize but began with that and the conservatives carried it on in their promise that if inside england areas want to devolve they in theory will will let them go almost the whole hog uh so i'm i'm very in favor of this happening inside england i think you can show it was a success in wales and scotland You'll notice I haven't mentioned Northern Ireland, but that's not. But it's not as if I don't know Northern Ireland's there. But so you'd need another. Well, you need somebody new more than I did. Where I worry is the great man theory. You know, it's a bit like it's like the mayor in Jaws. You know, <laughs> the great men on their own, things almost always go wrong. What you need is a cabinet. You know, just a dozen people with some power. So the London Assembly members are useful, even if you have a mayor of London who decides that his job is to do nothing because the market. We'll sort it. So he wants around doing nothing but being filled a lot, not the current mayor, his predecessor. The cabinet ministers can, can do things. But relying on a single man, almost always a man, as the great leader is dangerous. Uh, our best politicians in this country in terms of record, if we actually give them key performance statistics and measure them, which which politician got life expectancy up the most, which one did got poverty down the most, our best at Attlee, who was as bumbling as Corbyn, talked the same, but had a, had a bunch of people around him who, who'd been in power in the war. So they, between 45 and 50, they did an enormous number of things without a strong leader. Wilson, again, not a strong leader, but a bunch of cabinet people around him. The strong single hero leader is simply dangerous. And then secondly, on, on green shoots, loads of them. It's just that they're not recognised as green shoots. So fundamentally on inequality, what we've seen in the last two years, we have not seen since the early 1970s. It hasn't occurred what's happened in the last two years. What we've begun to see is a reduction in income inequality. We've seen it with benefits in the state pension being increased by inflation. Although, of course, real inflation for people who are poor is higher. But the only people as a large group who are seeing their incomes being increased so they stay the same with inflation are the very poorest. We have seen pay deals across the country, including in the private sector, that are all incredibly progressive in a way we haven't seen for over 50 years. Take the communication workers working for BT. Four or five years ago, they just agreed a blanket across the board, 3% wise for everybody. Now, if you're a highly paid worker, 3% is a lot of money. If you're at the bottom, it's 3% of the lowest amount. What they, in the private sector, they've agreed this time is highly, highly tiered so that the less you get, the bigger is your rise. The civil service, they've just had a number one off flat payment. You know, it might not be permanent, but that one off flat payment means far more to people who are on lower incomes than those who are higher. And there's a lovely touch from the government. They didn't offer it to permanent secretaries and so on, which I think is, is what they had to do to get the unions to go, okay, then. Top civil servants have had a 23% fall in their income in the last 10 years. 23%. Lower civil servants, it's about 12. This is what happened after the First World War. Now, people don't like it. Junior doctors don't like it. Hospital consultants don't like it. University professors really don't like it because how can people like me possibly exist with a 10% real pay cut 
like but I can't and I should because we've run out of money. So this is the best news I've seen in my life and almost nobody I talk to sees it as good news. I really am an optimist. It just has it has to carry on. I mean, moving away from that type of metric, and funnily enough, we were talking about this just before the start of the podcast, I mean, clearly there are new types of industries and sectors, whether they're digital or whether they're green. You know, are those of themselves likely to provide opportunities for, for example, upskilling of, of technician-level jobs, who who can earn more opportunities in different types of places away from the city of London, I think would be in your terms, which again might be green shoots of recovery, not just the green economy shoots, but, but also digital and hybrid working. Are, are, are those types of things that might also be drivers of the type of change that you'd like to see? They are in some cases, and they could be much more, but that does require a change in national priorities. At the moment, our our national priorities are a gambling casino finance sector outside of European Union control that can go back to this fantasy we had in the 80s and 90s of making so much money that the trickle down of it could look after ourselves. And it is simply a dangerous position. You know, we haven't quite moved yet to the point of you don't need to live in Guernsey for six months of the year. You can We can turn England into a Channel Island. And that is a major government policy is seeing our future as still finance. And that is, that is not good news. Coupled with that is being the number one country in the world for online gambling and profits being made from it. That isn't a safe thing to put your money in. Either and the third big growth sector is overseas students as export earnings. Uh, and again, it isn't safe to to rely so much on on these things. We have encouraged the firm finally to make some batteries in Staffordshire or wherever, which is a good thing. But the battery factory isn't necessarily a, a brilliant place to work. It's not as bad as the matchstick girls on, but you're talking chemicals. You don't necessarily want to be too near. We've given BMW in Oxford 75 million, so they don't leave, at least in the next seven years. That's 3,000 good jobs, but 1,200 brilliant robots that work in, in silence. And it's by far the biggest export earner in the city of Oxford. The BMW factory beats the University of Oxford and all its spin off companies by miles and miles, because you can produce an electric mini in one minute and two seconds. It takes about three or four years to produce a PhD student. So the economics of it are are kind of very simple. But when our government did gift, I think it was, not even a loan, gift 75 million earlier this year to BMW, they simultaneously cut 150 million from adult social security funds across the country because they were worried that the international financiers would increase our interest rates even more. So there is a real problem with the money has run out. People just think you can just print money don't understand what happens when the pound falls in value and the cost of food, which we import, rises. So you need an interventionist government, but it's going to have to intervene with very, very small sums of money in many little places, which again is why you want it to be devolved. The people who budget the best, who spend money the best, are the poorest in society. They are brilliant at working out what the hell you do with five pounds if that is what you've got in a week. 
So you that's why, apart from anything else, you don't want people living in such poverty because give people who are poor a little bit more money and they will spend it extremely wisely. The Greek who spoke and drink the most are the rich. We just pretend we don't do it. The group who next spend money most efficiently is the state, locally or nationally. Not as efficiently as the poor, but pretty carefully. The group who spend money most recklessly and wastefully are the well-off, who often don't even know what their heating bill is on their various houses, or how many holidays they're taking a year because they've forgotten how many they had or don't know what a holiday is by definition. There's so much wasted money that could be saved in a country that's this unequal, where over a third of children now have no holiday at all a year. None. And yet we're still saying it's absolutely fine if you can fly off on your private jet as much as you want. So we're going to have to squeeze ourselves together. And yes, we're going to have to innovate with digital jobs and so on, but we're not going to have billion-pound programs in some kind of new deal that could do it because we have shifted down a notch again in just how poor we are as a country. And this next drop down, where we have to pay more in interest in Italy and Spain, is going to be another shock. And it's 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 but 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 I'm optimistic because it's only when really? they, well it's only when the middle class begin to suffer and can't pay the private doctor that you get the national health service. Look, we're more or less out of time, I and mean, we could go on for a, a lot longer. All I can say is, look, thank you very very much. It's been quite an unusual episode for us. I do think it's given a lot of food for thought for local economic developments and placemaking practitioners. And at least your sort of final comments about actually the local state perhaps being better at determining priorities and allocating resource than certainly either the massive state or indeed you know, the big business and the large corporates and the, and the wealthy uh, will certainly resonate, I think. Mike, do you have any final comments? I, I was going to say, David, just briefly, that I think that we have touched on potentially a great idea for a future episode, which is to do a shout out to our network and really start to gather together the stories of local action that is happening across the country, local programs, innovation, social innovation is is the phrase, I guess, of professionals within our sector who know we're all working on programs that address these issues. And maybe we can start to gather together stories. Maybe we can bring some of those program leaders onto the show and let them discuss what they're doing and and and, and how it might be uh, more widely applicable. I think it'd be great to find some real gems out there and bring them to light. And then, Danny, we'll have you back and, and we'll we'll try and change you from a dystopic to a I'm all positive. Please uh, do. Please do. Futurologist. Um, Look, thank you very, very much. I'm David Marlowe. I hope that listeners have enjoyed that and will give us their feedback on the new website, www.ledconfidential.co.uk. And I've been Mike Spicer, and you can catch me through the LED Confidential uh, website, as David has just described. And of course, as per, there will be bonus material, uh, a write-up of the episode. So do join us on the website, leave your comments, tell us what you think. And if you've got any ideas for future episodes or future guests for the show, we're always welcome suggestions. So please do get in touch. Mm-hmm.